I'm George Walker, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, writers, get to know a bit more about the person. And our guest today is Murray Grodner. Murray Grodner, a longtime faculty member at the IU School of Music, a double bassist with several symphony orchestras, also involved with a variety of chamber music ensembles, one of the groups, one of the pioneering groups exploring early music. And in addition to his efforts as a teacher, Grodner published a method for the bass. And to support players around the world, he went into business. He created Lemur Music, offering publications, accessories, and instruments. Thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. I've enjoyed looking over a timeline of your career. And mine begins with you playing in the ballet orchestra under Antal Durati in 1941. But I'm curious, there are so many instruments out there. There are so many that are so portable. And you're a double bassist. How did that happen? It happened um, because I always wanted to be a musician because my grandmother's record player had classical music and I fell in love with it. And um, it just vegetated for a long time until my uncle, who was a a professional clarinetist, talked with my father and they said, well, we have to do something about him. He still wants to be in music. And I was 15 at the time, 15 and a half actually, and uh, they got together and got me a teacher to uh, start my studies. Why the double bass? Because at that time, if you played the double bass, you were sure to go to work because there was such a shortage. And they and they weren't sure how talented or not talented I was. And I figured, well, double bass would be safe. <laughs> well, it turned out to be not quite as safe as you might have, as they might have thought. But that's a little later in our story. So how did it happen that uh, that you ended up in a ballet orchestra under Durati in 1941? That was actually my first professional engagement. I think I was 19 at the time. And um, my teacher uh, had, had influence with Durati, and we had me take an audition, and they liked the playing, and... Um, I was engaged with three other bass players. Now, this was playing for a ballet. Is playing for a ballet different than playing for uh, straight classical music? Really not. At that time, ballet would tell stories. They would do things like Scheherazade or Beethoven's Seventh, and they'd have a story to go with it. It's not like today's ballet, which is quite classical and uh, devoid of um, story action on stage, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, from there, you actually moved to working with one of the other great conductors that you've worked with, uh, Fritz Reiner, in Pittsburgh in 1942. How did that happen? Uh, that was uh, an audition, and um, they often be principal, and I was delighted at my age to get a crack at that. It only lasted um, half a season because then I had to go into the service for three years. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to audition for a symphony orchestra. You take a prepare, you have a prepared piece that you start with. Then after that, if the conductor so chooses, he will give you excerpts from different symphonies or classical music to play that is famous for having um, 
difficult double bass parts. It would be passages, not complete pieces. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Murray Grodner about uh, a career in music. So you were drafted into the Army as a, as a foot soldier or as a musician? I was drafted in the Army uh, as a foot soldier. Didn't know where we were going to go, what I was going to do, or anything like that. And um, we were on a train for four days and ended up in Washington State at Fort Lewis. Clear across the country. Mm-hmm. In a field artillery No kidding. Mm -hmm. Now, your bio says that you ended up being the only bass player in an Army band. What does a bass player do in a band? I played mellophone in a band, actually. Uh, My bass playing was with a jazz band at night. Uh Uh-huh. So they were using you at the bottom in both situations. Right. So that was with the Army band, but then something happens with a group called the Symphonyette? Yes, There was an organization being formed in the Air Corps in Orlando uh, of a symphonette, which ended up being about 29 pieces. And um, they also needed a bass, and they tried to get me transferred from the ground forces to the Air Corps, which was very difficult at the time. And uh, the warrant officer in charge of the band wouldn't let me go until the third request came through, which was an order to him to let me go whether he liked it or not. And um, I ended up in the Air Corps uh, with this wonderful group made up of musicians from the Chicago Symphony, New York Philharmonic, NBC Symphony, uh, Fine Arts Quartet, etc. No kidding. So let's see. They put you on a train. It was four days to get you to Washington State. And now uh, I'm presuming it's about four days back to Orlando. Uh, except that in between, I was transferred with the with the band into an armor division, which ended up in Fort Smith, Arkansas. So it was from there that I was transferred, actually. My goodness. Join the service and see the world. Yes. Well, parts of the world you may want, want to see. <laughs> <laughs> world War II was a complicated uh, engagement on, on, of course, both fronts. And in 1945, one of the major battles in Europe really called for the addition of trained personnel, and you got some training all of a sudden. Uh, what happened is, at right after the Battle of the Bulge, there was a shortage of infantrymen, and everybody below the rank of sergeant in our group was sent to the infantry, whether we wanted it or not. And when we got there, we were came at the beginning of a cycle of eight weeks where there was two weeks waiting for a six-week training cycle. And um, one of our members was in contact with the um, special service officer there because our uh, somebody at the Air Force post had written to him about the group. It so happened there was 19 of us who were shipped down there. And he went to see him, and, and he said, well, if you fellas want to send for your instruments and play for two weeks for war bonds in town, that's fine. And we said, sure. He says, if you do and do that, you'll have to be scrubbing the barracks. And we thought playing was more fun. <laughs> so uh, we got our instruments and we had our first rehearsal in the camp theater. And about a half hour after we were rehearsing, the special service officer came in and 
heard the group, and uh, he said, fellas, stay here and keep producing. I'll be right back. In about 20 minutes, he came back with the uh, post general, and um, they were both amazed at the quality of the group. Well, it was the top professionals that had us on. And fortunately, the 19 of us comprised a logically balanced group in terms of instrumentation. And from that point on, they finally decided to attach us to the band where we stayed for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And then one day we um, were called to play to the officer's mess because General Stillwell was coming through on a tour of inspection. And about 20 minutes after we were playing, General Stillwell walked in, and of course, attention was called. And he said... um, um, I would like to sit here and just have some coffee. And this was about 15 feet away from the group. And they asked him why he would, if he would like to go into staff offices. And I said, no, he said, I just want a cup of coffee and would like to sit here. And after about 20 minutes listening, he called out the conductor who was a PFC, the um, highest-ranking sergeant we had with us, who was a tech sergeant. And we found we were going to be shipped to the War College in Washington and play for war bonds the rest of the war. Tell me a little bit about the repertoire that you played in the war bond rallies. We played everything from um, what I would call light classical to uh, arrangements of things like uh, Holiday for Strings and um, Hoagie Carmichael's Favorite and stuff like that. So we kind of played everything because uh, it was for a mixed audience that we were playing for. Mm-hmm. How long would the shows be that you would put together with the War Bond shows in the 40s? Our concerts would probably be close to an hour. Was this all instrumental, or did you have vocalists with the group? No, this group was all instrumental. We traveled by bus all over Pennsylvania and New England, and, and uh, we were treated like um, gods wherever we went. But we were soldiers, and the local service clubs would have us over, and it was always a Stay at fine steak of some kind. Sounds to me as if uh, really in many ways, especially with the compatriots that you had during this particular period, the people who'd been inducted along with you, as if this was a, in many ways a very rich period in your development. It was, for me, a great learning period to be with string players of the highest caliber. And um, I joined them when I was 20 years old and uh, learned an awful lot. So now we're coming to the end of the war. You'd been with the Pittsburgh Symphony under Fritz Reiner uh, for a half a season before you were inducted into the Army, and uh, he was apparently glad to have you back. I went back, yes, um, and I stayed there for another two years. And then I went to Houston because there was a principal opening, and your eyes are always when you're young to uh, get a job playing principal. I found it had its blessings and it had its, had its other side as well. Now, in a symphony orchestra, there are, what, five, six, seven, eight bass players perhaps? Yes, eight to nine. Yes. Now, if you're the principal, what does that mean? It means minimally you're responsible for marking the parts so that everybody is playing the same thing bowing-wise. It also means you're responsible to an extent, a very small extent, for the um, discipline of the section. That can be very easy if you have a group of players who are all thinking in the same direction or all have uh, the proper playing manner, so to speak. 
it can be difficult if somebody in a section is not completely competent in being part of a group in terms of ensemble. And that can be a time when you wish you were in principle because the only one to speak to the person is either you or the conductor, and a conductor generally doesn't know that's happening. And I had to speak to a, an individual at that time, and he was a good friend of mine, and after we talked, that was the end of our friendship. So it's not easy. No kidding. So you left Pittsburgh in part because you wanted to be a, a principal. Now, you were moving from Fritz Reiner a name perhaps familiar to many of our listeners on WFIU. One of the greatest that ever lived. And you went to a conductor whose name I'm not as familiar with, Ephraim Kurtz. Yes, he he had done a lot of conducting in England and the USA and had conducted some of the biggest orchestras. He was a nice man. He was not not, uh, in Reiner's level of competency, but he was a good conductor. I also played with Toscanini, and I would say that people don't realize that Reiner was every bit as great. So Reiner really, to you, was uh, was the ne plus ultra in terms of, uh, of conductors. Now, you were moving from Pittsburgh to Houston, in part so that you could be a principal in the orchestra. Was there a little difference in the musical culture in Pittsburgh or in Houston? The Pittsburgh Symphony had been there a long time. Absolutely. Houston was um, not in its infancy, but generally in a period past its infancy, beginning to be a professional orchestra before. I know that several years before, it was um, an orchestra where you made something like uh, 50 bucks a month or less. And um, they were gradually becoming more supported. But it was still, it was still, it was not a cow town. But it was still a town where culture had not yet completely arrived or matured. Now, did this affect the repertoire that the orchestras presented in Pittsburgh and in Houston? Not really. the The repertoire was very was quite normal, mm-hmm. and the concerts were well attended. There was enough. It was a big enough city to have an audience that uh, made the orchestra possible. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Murray Grodner, a longtime faculty member at the IU School of Music, a double bassist with uh, orchestras, chamber groups, and also a bit of a music businessman as well. I'm your host, George Walker. Thanks for tuning in. You mentioned uh, in terms of talking with Reiner, you compared him to Toscanini. And in part, of course, I'm delighted that you played with Toscanini because part of that playing was on the radio. So that was a time there. You were with Toscanini, 51 to 54. Correct. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Toscanini was, I think, about 75 or or thereabouts at that time. And um, he could um, famously erupt. But it was he never really yelled at a person. He would yell at an instrument. And it'd be rather impersonal. He might say, Oboe, you're stupid, but the next day it was forgotten. Uh, you'd say to bases, you're a bunch of horses, or, but the next day it was forgotten. And it was not something that um, 
he would remember and hold hold you accountable for later on. He was great in the in Beethoven, Mozart, classical period, some of the Romantic period, and he did Strauss well. Reiner, on the other hand, was a genius from Strauss onto um, the contemporary period. He would put things together in in a minimal amount of time that was so complicated and make it so clear for us how to approach it. One of the things that people are not necessarily aware of is a conductor has to know his score, and that doesn't mean technically know the words, the um, notes that are on a page. He has to know the sound that he wants. He has to know the tempos that he wants. He has to know how to bend the music the way that the composer would shine properly. And this determines how the orchestra is going to sound. Or, if you don't have those attributes, the conductor gets up in front of the orchestra and waves a stick, and it doesn't make any difference if he has said anything or not. It's just a um, an interpretation that it evolves because we all know the piece. Like an audience wants to be inspired, the musician also wants to be inspired, the conductor, to ask of you the most of what you can do and inspire you to do it by his being so musical and intuitive and knowing how to work with people that you you admire him and sometimes you even worship somebody who has the great gift. Really? Can you say specifically uh, perhaps strong points because I'm sure you were aware uh, of, of occasional weak points in conductors. You've really talked about Reiner as really being uh, the model in many ways. Toscanini as being a, a great conductor, but uh, sometimes perhaps not as a, able to communicate as some of the others. And I'm curious about that. Well, he, he was actually good at communicating, a great conductor is inspirational because of the interpretation he places upon the pieces that you're playing with him, and you're touched by it and want to be part of it. Conductors who are other than that are kind of pedantic and just putting you through the paces and have not necessarily any inspiring things to say about how the music should be played or how you should be playing it. And... Actually, as musicians, we enjoy listening as much as listeners enjoy listening if we're playing in a uh, inspiring performance. Mm-hmm. So you were with Toscanini, 1951 to 54. <clears throat> Somehow or other, while you were with Toscanini, you also managed to uh, pick up a couple of degrees at the Manhattan School of Music. Having been in the service, you were entitled to go to college for I'll get your degrees gratis. And um, I was working both a Broadway show and the NBC Symphony at the same time. And I knew the dean of the Manhattan School of Music, and she talked me into coming back. And uh, so I did my work on the subways in New York because there was no other time that, that I had. I worked at night with the uh, show, and I uh, then there were concerts with NBC and there were rehearsals with NBC. So that uh, the degrees were subway a subway special. <laughs> so you were also working on a degree. I didn't know that you also were playing shows. Do you remember some of the shows you played yes. for? Yes. 
Porgy and Bess. Um, Guys and Dolls. Paint Your Wagon. Kismet. Tell us a little bit about playing in a pit orchestra. Playing in a pit orchestra still demands that you be on your toes all the time, because if you don't, the person who's called the contractor, who's the uh, He's also usually a musician playing in the orchestra. Uh, we'll see to it that somebody else takes your place for the next show. So in spite of the fact that you may be playing it 100 or 150 times, you still have to be on your toes because every performance is another execution of what the, what the uh, playwright wrote or the composer wrote for the playwright. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that you've talked about a little bit was that... Uh, during your time in the Army and in some of the orchestras, you met some people who later would be uh, your colleagues at Indiana University. Absolutely. It turned out that um, before I went into service, I knew three members of the Berkshire Quartet Mm -hmm. because they were in the group I was in in the service. And um, I played with them up in Music Mountain, which is in Upper Connecticut, uh, Northwest Connecticut. And when the teacher who was here unfortunately died, they contacted me and um, I was interested in doing that since NBC was going to be no more. It folded. And that meant that um, you had members of the NBC section of the um, CBS and ABC and uh, WOR. You would have... Uh, Four sections of bass players suddenly looking for work in New York. And with NBC gone, I had no interest of just playing Broadway shows for the rest of my, rest of my musical career. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I um, was interested in the position at IU and very happy that things worked out. So you came to IU in the mid-50s? In 55. Uh-huh. And how many double bass teachers were there at IU? That was me. That was one when I got here. Yeah, we had about, um, i say about 500 students at the time. There was a good deal of faculty participation in the orchestral ensembles because the uh, quality and quantity was not quite up to snuff yet, but it grew like topsy. Bain was a miracle maker. Tell us a little bit about those early days of you with the IU School of Music, the mid-50s under Dean Bain. Well, when I first came here, there were 12 Bay students. Your normal load is 18 or 19. Of the group that was here studying bass, one was a major and two were concentrations, and the rest were basically electives. So there really was not a bass class to speak of. I would say in the um, mid-'70s, I was teaching 25 majors, which was more than I was supposed to, and you don't get paid for overloads <laughs> So it, it, it grew, and the school grew, and it, it became an unbelievable, unbelievable um, musical school. 
in many ways, Dean Bain built the IU School of Music around the opera program and the orchestras to play for the opera. Did that weigh heavily on your students? No, not really, because he knew in order to have an excellent instrumental program and have an orchestra that was going to be a complement to itself and to the opera program, because there were symphony orchestras playing in addition to their their um, obligations at concerts, they were also playing operas. He was a genius in finding people who had the kind of talent that was needed to teach here and work here. I understand that he was able to find people to, uh, such as yourself, to, to come here and to teach here. I was just wondering how... Uh, with the group that you described where you had, I think, one major and then uh, perhaps nine who were taking it as an elective, how this was filling out the orchestral complement on campus. Well, I think we had only one orchestra at the time. Uh-huh. So having 12 students uh, who could hold instruments worked. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm assuming that either you or the student who actually was a major was the uh, principal for the orchestra. Yeah, the faculty played in the, in the fill. Uh, not too long after, I think it was later, a little later on, that we had two orchestras. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the enrollment, the enrollment grew quite rapidly. As you were describing earlier, it grew a bit like Topsy. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Murray Grodner about his early days in the 50s with the IU School of Music. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm George Walker. You'd met a number of the people uh, that were at IU in the service and, in fact, uh, worked with them in some chamber groups as well. Yes. Basically, it was the former Gordon Quartet, three members who became the Berkshire Quartet, which, again, was up in uh, their, their summer base was in Connecticut. And three of the members were on the IU faculty at this point. It was Fritz Mogg, David Dawson, and uh, Al, Al Lazan. Mm-hmm. And um, they were good friends, and I was grateful for them letting me know that the position was available. And, of course, they spoke to the dean to get in touch with me, and I played an audition for the dean, and the next thing I knew, I was here. You actually recorded with the Berkshire Quartet at one point. Yes, we did. He, they did a Dvorak album, and uh, included in the album was the Dvorak Quintet, which has double bass. Mm-hmm. The other works were all for a quartet. Was Dvorak kind to the double bass in his chamber music? Probably one of the most interesting writers of chamber music that included double bass. Really? If we were seeking out uh, other pieces by Dvorak featuring the double bass, what might we look for? It would have to be the symphony orchestra because I don't know of anything else that he's written for double bass in Mm -hmm. chamber music. And you got to play the one? Yes. (laughs) Several times. Now... At this point, in some ways, there were some uh, minor revolutions, I think, in, uh, in, in music. For many people uh, my age growing up uh, in the late 50s and 60s, the new interest in some of the early music provided us with a, 
a special area that could be our own that our parents didn't really know very much about. And this was uh, the Baroque and the Renaissance. And you were actually a part of a group of classical musicians who were already exploring this and looking really, I think, to some of the cream of the crop with composers like Handel, Bach, and Telemann. Yes, the group was made up of flute, oboe, harpsichord, and double bass. We did uh, did primarily Baroque, and then uh, later on we would have one contemporary piece on each concert as well, uh, which, and the contemporary pieces were um, specially written for us in most cases. Uh, Thomas Bevisoff, who was on the faculty here, wrote a piece for us. And Barati, who was not a faculty member, but a well-known composer, wrote a piece for us. And there were several others. And it was a joy to play... um, Baroque music with a modern approach. By that I mean we played modern instruments and vibrato was part of playing modern instruments, which was which, which the Baroque instruments did not employ. And um, I've kind of missed that when listening to old instruments because it's part of the beauty of producing sound. And the Baroque was a, was a great group. We had a lot of success, and we did a lot of traveling. You traveled uh, not just in the United States. You also did some international traveling. Yes. We had an invitation from Australia, and we were there for, I think, three weeks. And we played in Sydney. We played in Melbourne. We played in Adelaide, and we played in some outlying districts as well. It was a lot of fun. Uh, my bass came there with a fingerboard off, and... That was um, a hair raiser. Unfortunately, there was a violin maker who was able to put it together because we had a concert the next night. <laughs> <laughs> Road adventures. Yes. Early on in uh, the enthusiasm for early music, which for many people uh, consisted of playing the recorder mostly badly, there, uh, I think... Sometimes you'd actually hear people say that uh, the thing about early music was that you weren't supposed to be able to quite play it in tune. Your feeling was that one of the advantages of modern instruments and a modern approach was that, in fact, the full beauty really could be realized by playing it in tune. Yes, I appreciate a good uh, Baroque ensemble. I'm disturbed when people take advantage of the fact that um, there are not that many Baroque players and perform on recordings, which they're not qualified to do. A fine Baroque group is is a wonderful experience. Ones that think they play Baroque instruments and really are a little better than amateurs is not a joy to listen to. One of the things that really bothers me is we, there are wonderful recorder players I've heard uh, playing phenomenal uh, technique and beautiful sound. But then when it comes to hold a long note, they cannot vibrate. 
and the sound that is sustained is not one of beauty. So that's my qualms, but um, I do appreciate the, the wonderful playing some Baroque, group, Baroque groups do. But I do like it better with modern instruments where we hear the sounds we're used to. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sometime during this period, you became a bit of a music businessman, really quite more than just a bit of a music businessman. It was completely an accident. I never had any eyes for the commercial world. I thought it was probably the most boring thing one could do. And um, when I was in Europe for a year on sabbatical, I had met a double bass maker by the name of Pullman, and his instruments were not seen in the USA at all, and I couldn't imagine why, because they were so well-made and they were rather decent-sounding. And uh, there was a shortage of of instruments in the USA in terms of something in a reasonable price that was well-made. And I spoke with the uh, maker, and I said, well, I tell you what, I'm finishing a book that I'm going to send a flyer out on, and I'd be happy to put your instrument on the back. And this was fine, and I got back to New York, and by the time I was ready to uh, advertise my book, an importer developed for that double bass. So I said, that's fine. You have the opportunity now that you were looking for. And I got a letter from the importer saying, we still would like you to do it, and uh, et cetera. And he began to talk business and all that type of thing. And uh, I said, okay, I'll put it on the back. And um, then he sent me his catalog, and oh, there were good bows in there. And then I said, oh, okay, I'll put some bows on. And I sent out the flyers, and I was amazed at the end of the year I was making money from that I never had envisioned. And I found out that there was a great deal missing for the double bassist in the USA in terms of availability. Because when you go into a violin shop, it's a violin shop, and maybe there's a few things for the double bass. And there were some double bass repairmen around the country, but only in the big cities. And I began to wonder, well, maybe this is the kind of a service that people have been waiting for, because there was nobody doing it in total. So I took a crack at it and decided we'd send out a 10-page, or I think it was even less than that, flyer, included everything for the instrument, what a player could need. And believe it or not, there's close to a 90 to 100 things that a double bassist needs. And it just grew like like, like topsy-turvy. I, mean, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine uh, this would happen, and we became internationally known. <laughs> now, you named it L-E-M-U-R. Lemur? My wife's first wife's name was Lee. Yeah. And mine's Murray. <laughs> I didn't know there was an animal named a lemur. And this, this really continued just for years and years and years. I, I still have an old lemur catalog. My son played double bass in uh, high school. And this really did grow. This was a big part of your activity uh, for more than 30 years. Well, actually, while I was at the, at the university, I had people working for me. My wife, uh, of course, was involved so that I didn't have to uh, impact what I was doing at the university. Mm-hmm. The company was eventually taken over by people who now live in California, and it's still going, and it, it's, uh, I would say, 10 times bigger than what I had developed. My goodness. 
I'm assuming that uh, that the back page of the book that they were talking about that you might have put the first ad for uh, uh, Pullman's bases on was uh, your publication in 65, The Organized Method of String Playing? No, it was a... Um it was a source book of available music for the double bass, including solos, ensembles, quartets, everything up to ten instruments, mm-hmm. uh, everything but orchestral music. And the reason I did that is the typical bassist knew maybe 20, 30 pieces, and the rest of it was a mystery to me as well. Mm-hmm. And when I began to do research, I was amazed at how much there was. And um, I um, decided I was going to put out a book to help the others who didn't have the information that I don't think anybody had. Eventually, uh, I think it was in 204 or 205, I put out two volumes equaling 750 pages of music for the double bass, including, including recordings. Now, at one point in your career at Indiana University uh, in 1979, you actually headed west and uh, went and played with the Sacramento Symphony Orchestra under Carter Nice. Carter, yes. I think I really missed orchestral playing. And at the point where I wanted to go back and do some orchestral playing... I was at the age where major orchestras were no longer a uh, an option. I heard there was an opening for a principal bass in the um, Sacramento Symphony, and I contacted someone there, and things worked out that where I was uh, playing principal in the symphony and teaching at the at the um, Sacramento State University. So you you took off for about a three year period there and played with that group. Yes, I did. And um, things began to unfold in Sacramento, and I was talking with the University of Texas. Dean Webb heard that I had been talking to Texas. He said, why wouldn't you come back to Indiana? I said, if things conditions are right, certainly I'd come back to Indiana. And that's how I came back here. So the Berkshire Quartet had helped you come the first time, and Dean Webb... uh, uh, yes. The second time. Tell us a little bit about the experience playing in Sacramento. Uh, we've talked a little bit about conductors that you've worked with that uh, are names, uh, Fritz Reiner and Arturo Toscanini. Conductor Carter Nice. He was uh, a competent, uh, quite a competent conductor, and um, he seemed to know his orchestra. I don't really know what happened to him uh, subsequently because I kind of lost touch. Mm-hmm. So lured back to Bloomington in 1982, you once again were at IU School of Music. Uh, Dean Webb had called you back, and three years had passed. What changes did you find when you came back? Well, the first change I knew would happen when I came back was there was was a second teacher in the double bass and. Happily, it was a person I knew and a very fine teacher and uh, individual. And um, there were enough students at that point for us to have two teachers. Um, In fact, there were enough students way back when I had 25 majors and couldn't teach any of the concentrations. 
uh, for two teachers, but somehow it never happened. And when uh, I was asked to come back, I said, how come you've already got one teacher? Um, that will make two. He said, well, now we need two, and so <laughs> settled that. It, it was, was kind of an accusation on my part. Why don't you give me help when I needed it? <laughs> Who was your colleague? Stuart Sankey. Uh-huh. He had uh, done a lot of writing of um, double bass materials in terms of methods and stuff like that, uh, editing methods and uh, things like that. And uh, he was a very well-schooled musician. Mm-hmm. So the two of you worked in tandem then with the yes. bassists at Indiana University. So that was one of the changes. Uh, were there other changes in the size of the school or the culture? When I came back... It had grown some, but it had grown a great deal before I ever left. I don't know what proportions it had reached. I think it was something between 1,500 and 1,700 students mm-hmm. compared to 500 that were here when I was here. And, of course, the level of students had changed dramatically from when I was first here. Mm-hmm. What we have today are not student orchestras, but really young professional orchestras because the students who come to Indiana now have to be actually as good as young professionals who still have some learning to do and maturing to do. But technically and and, uh, talent-wise, when they prepare a work for a concert, they sound as good as many professional orchestras around the country. You've actually been watching classical music uh, since you were listening to phonograph records and listening to your family perform. So you've been listening to classical music over the years for just uh, a long, long time. Has classical music changed? Classical music hasn't changed, but the, um, the world of music has changed in the USA primarily because we love things that we're exposed to and enjoy being part of or imbibing. Um, The way things are in the USA today, there is very little exposure of classical music. Uh, There may may be a big city with one radio station or there may not. and the amount, it, when I was in, living in New York, you had about three classical music stations as there was music going all day long in terms of classical music. Now I understand that WQXR is no longer. In the public schools, the exposure of young people to classical music is little or nothing. Classical music means the great works of the past and the present that the students are giving exposure to either through playing or through somehow going to a concert and listening. And I think that our nation is in deep trouble as far as the national, the classical music existence uh, goes because if the audience is going to diminish, so will the orchestras. And what is happening as a result of that, the orchestras now think that in order to maintain their audience, they keep on playing the same repertoire over and over again because that's what they think the audience wants. I think the audience will get tired of that too. Mm-hmm. And if the only way I think that music 
classical music can survive in America is if the public schools and the symphony orchestras get together and give exposure to these youngsters at the concert hall so that they can appreciate the surroundings uh, and how they affect them emotionally and the full orchestra. Sending out a quintet is not sending out an orchestra, and it doesn't give the students an experience in their own auditorium of a classical music concert. There is, at least in Monroe County, a fairly active orchestral program in addition to the band programs. You're talking about the Bloomington Symphony. I was thinking also about uh, Ms. Gowker's efforts with the youth orchestras uh, in both high schools. Yeah, um, I I think Bloomington is unique because with a great school of music, uh, it affords other things to happen in a community, both with people who are living in Bloomington who are not part of the School of Music, and also by having students involved in the same groups. It affords the opportunity for classical music to be going on beyond the um, School of Music. And uh, then they and the uh, Jane Gawker is, is a former student of the School of Music as well. And a double bassist. And a double bassist. Yeah, she was a student <laughs> of mine. Yeah, she's a very active... Uh, productive person. Murray, if if you were going to put together a short list, how about how about a a desert island question? If uh, if you had three pieces that you could have on your desert island, what would they be? Well, Beethoven something would be there. <laughs> Beethoven something. Uh-huh. Um Bach something would be there. Bach something. And having to go later in literature, I would say Strauss. That leaves out too many other grades, but being forced to choose three, I'll choose those three, but necessarily thinking about about it for a long time, I might change my mind. <laughs> I think Beethoven is, in my opinion, probably the, possibly the greatest mind that ever lived. If you listen to his late quartets, he was so in the future, he heard things that we're doing today. It was uh, unbelievable. Uh huh. That doesn't make Mozart any less of a genius, and I think Bach was also the same type of individual as, as Beethoven. He saw into the future too. Really, and and Strauss. Well, Strauss was part of the future, and now he's part of the past. <laughs> but yes, he was a well Wagner, of course. In fact, almost almost every great composer did travel into the future with the compositions that he wrote. But Beethoven had the ability to see beyond what he was doing and begin to incorporate some of that, which didn't happen until, I would say, early 20th century, late 19th century. Uh huh. So that kind of genius is, uh, is someone who has a vision that never stops. Murray Grodner. 
longtime faculty member of the IU School of Music, a double bassist with several symphony orchestras. Murray was also involved with a variety of chamber music ensembles, the Berkshire Quartet and the IU Baroque Chamber Players. In addition to his efforts as a teacher, Grodner published a method for the bass, and to support players around the world, he went into business, creating lemur music, offering publications, accessories, and instruments. By the way, our conversation continued after this interview. Murray sent me a note and said that in the third position, in which he'd placed Richard Strauss, he thought perhaps Igor Stravinsky was the composer who should be there. For WFIU's Profiles, I'm George Walker. The program you just heard was recorded in August of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.